All right, from Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. This is kind of the bookend to the text that we read at the beginning from Isaiah. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it, and the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were twenty-four other thrones, and seated on them were twenty-four elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder." Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. And also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had, the face, had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. God is not sappy. God is not naive. God is not a sentimental fool. To quote one of our good church members, Al Boyd, God is not squishy. That's a great theological term. God is not squishy. God is holy. In this series, The Good and Beautiful God, we've seen that God is good, that He is trustworthy, that He is generous, and that He is love. But God is not sappy, He is not naive, He is not a sentimental fool. God is holy. Several years ago, I attended a funeral and Reverend Herbert Ponder prayed the prayer, this prayer in the funeral. In his prayer, he said, he declared to the Almighty, God, you are still God all by yourself. I've never heard a more appropriate description or definition of holiness than that. God is God all by Himself. The incomparable, the inimitable, the matchless, the peerless. The one who is unlike all others. God is God all by Himself. He is not sappy. He is not naive. He is not a sentimental fool. God is holy. That's what we're going to talk about today. And here at the very beginning, we have to acknowledge that holiness, that God's holiness, involves wrath. Romans eleven twenty two, 22, Ms. Shelley read that a moment ago. Consider, therefore, the kindness and the sternness of God. We have, in these last few weeks, we have considered His kindness. He is good. He is trustworthy. He is generous. He is loved. Here now, at least for a moment, we have to... We have to acknowledge his sternness. James Bryan Smith, of course, the author of The Good and Beautiful God, talked about preaching on a, a sermon on grace one Sunday morning. He talked about God as loving, as, 
He talked about grace being not conditional about, uh, uh, not being conditioned upon our behavior. And he talked about how Jesus died for all and forgives our sins. And it was a wonderful, affirming message. And at least I guess it was. He didn't say it was in the book, but I imagine it was. But after the service, a, a large man came to him. He, he found out later, Smith found out later, it was a police officer. And, and he said, Thank you for your message. I heard you five years ago preach a similar message that changed my life. He said, you talked about grace, and I'd always thought God was mad at me, and to learn that he loved me despite my sin was transforming. He said, I got a CD of the message, and I've listened to it dozens of times, and I've shared it with people. Thank you for that story, that, that message of grace. And James Bryan Smith felt affirmed. He thought, you know, this message, the good and beautiful God is really important in a world where so many people think God is just angry. But then a young lady came to him and said, thank you for the message this morning about God's grace, about him loving us no matter what we do, about Jesus forgiving our sins. Because she said, I've been living with my boyfriend for some time now, and I grew up in a church where they said that is a sin, and I've been feeling guilty. Thank you for relieving my guilt, she said. And James Bryan Smith thought, uh-oh, she has misunderstood or misapplied this message of grace. He was able to meet with her later and say, you misunderstood. God does love us, but... That doesn't mean that what we do is not important to him. And God, he said, he, God wants what's best for you. And what's best for you, the physical intimacy is, is best reserved for the covenant of marriage where you're safe with each other. And, but the stories remind us that we can't, talking about the good and beautiful God does not mean we ignore his sternness. God's holiness means that there is a wrathful side to God, that it means there's an amazingness to His grace and a wideness to His mercy. But there is also a, there's also a fierceness to His wrath. But it is really important that we understand wrath in the biblical sense of the word. As the Bible describes God's wrath, God's wrath, it does not mean he's mean. And please hear me, don't equate divine wrath with, with human rage. Two different things. Please do not equate divine wrath with human rage. God's wrath, as defined in the Bible, is not some impulsive, irrational, uncontrollable, violent fit of anger. It is not that. It is rather his intentional but passionate response to our wrongdoing. God is passionate about those things that are bad for us and for others. God is passionate about those things that separate us from him. And so he acts on those even to punish us. But not out of anger, not out of impulse. Not, it's not irrational. It's not uncontrolled anger. It's intentional, passionate response to our wrongdoing. If we're not careful, we'll, when we think about God's wrath, we'll think about a father, an abusive father, who maybe he, he berates his daughter because she made a B on her report card. Maybe he berates his son because his son struck out at a baseball game. That is not the picture of God's wrath in the Bible. James Bryan Smith, and I tried not to use too many illustrations from his book because I know so many of you are reading it, but they were so good this week. He compared God's wrath to MAD, M-A-D-D, -D, Mothers Against Drunk Driving. 
Mothers Against Drunk Driving said, we cannot stand idly by while people get behind the wheels of cars under the influence of alcohol and endanger themselves and endanger other people. Some of them having suffered the loss of their own children to drunk driving. So they fought for better laws. Sometimes they made people angry. Sometimes they offended people. But they said, we can't for the sake of niceness do nothing. And so they, they exercised madness. Mothers Against Drunk Driving, they acted madly, if you will, to intervene because there is... There is, should be accountability. And so we are accountable to God in this life. And then when, when history comes to its final conclusion, we will be held accountable for how we've lived life here. And remembering that reminds us that, that God is not lenient. He is, he is not indulgent. He neither winks at nor turns a blind eye to our wrongdoing. God is good and God is love, and God is generous, and God is trust, trustworthy, but God is holy. Now, real quickly, establish, having established, I hope, that God is holy, that He is God all by Himself, that He is the incomparable, the inimitable, the matchless, the peerless one, and that His wrath involves, uh, that, that His holiness involves wrath, then what does that call for from us? What does that mean for the living of our lives? Number one. God's holiness informs our response to Him. Because God is holy, our relationship with God ought to be balanced between familiarity and awe, between informality and reverence. Let me say that again. Because God is holy, our response, our relationship with Him should be balanced between familiarity and awe between informality and reverence. In musical terms, that means we ought to balance songs like What a Friend We Have in Jesus with Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty. In theological terms, it means we balance His transcendence with His eminence. Transcendent meaning He's beyond what we can imagine. Eminence meaning He is right here with us. God is holy reminds us that we can't get too buddy-buddy with God. He is our friend. He is present. But whether it's in our theology, in our singing, in our praying, we have to remember He is beyond that which we can imagine. So we balance familiarity and awe, informality and reverence. It's like Matthew 28, 8. The women that morning, Easter morning, went to the tomb saw that it was empty. And the Bible says the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy. What a wonderful phrase. Afraid yet filled with joy. They were a bundle of trembles and giggles that Easter Sunday morning. They were afraid, not that Jesus would hurt them, but they were awestruck. And they were filled with joy. That, that is, that's how we ought to relate to God. Afraid, awestruck, and yet filled with joy, balance, familiarity and awe, informality and reverence, trembles and giggles. So how do we relate? God's holiness says, one, we relate to God with a balance. Number two, God's holiness requires our holiness. First Peter 1, 15 and 16, just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do, for it is written, be holy, because I am holy. God says, be noticeably different. Don't follow your base impulses. 
As followers of Jesus, our dating lives, our academic lives, our recreational lives, our work lives ought to be different. But please hear me. Holy does not mean holier than thou. Holy does not mean smug, self-righteous, and sanctimonious. We are not supposed to be negatively different. We're supposed to be attractively different. Titus 2.10. We're supposed to live so as to make the teaching about our God and Savior attractive. My, buddy, uh, my friend, Buddy Childress, talked about this verse and said that that word attractive is the word cosmosin, from which we get the word cosmetics, which are supposed to make us more attractive. He said that phrase goes back to the practice of placing jewelry that we still practice today. You go to a jeweler to buy a piece of jewelry, he or she will place that jewelry on a black velvet cloth. The jewelry has its own worth, but the cloth makes it pop. We're supposed to make God pop. We're supposed to make him look good. To be holy doesn't mean to be negatively different. It means to be different in a, in a winsome and positive way. So whether we're in an office or on the factory floor or running a household or running a company or in a, on a date or in a meeting or where, in a band or on the football team, wherever we are, we're supposed to be different, attractively different. God is holy, so we're supposed to remember that He is beyond what we can imagine. God is holy, so we're supposed to be holy. Number three, God's holiness demands our surrender. When I moved to Richmond, I met a man named Doug who is in, in recovery. He's an alcoholic. When I met him, he was in AA working the program, very involved in the recovery ministry of our church. Doug grew up in church, but then he wandered and um, his life fell apart. And a friend of his wanted to help him out, so he gave him some cassettes. That was before podcasts. He gave, he gave Doug, Doug some cassettes and it was a guy named Wayne Dyer. You may have heard of him. A motivational speaker. Spiritual speaker. So Doug was listening to these cassettes by Wayne Dyer, and he heard Wayne Dyer say enough things that sounded biblical that Doug was getting into it. But then Wayne Dyer said through that cassette to Doug, You are God. We are all God's. And Doug thought, no, that's what got me in this mess to begin with, thinking I'm God. Trying to play God in my life almost cost me my life, he said. He returned to his church. He returned to a transformational faith. Again, became involved in a Christ-centered recovery ministry because he realized he ain't God. In fact, that recovery ministry had a common saying, there is a God and you didn't get the job. And that's a good one for us to remember. There is a God and it ain't you and it ain't me. And if he is, if he is uniquely qualified to run the universe, then he is uniquely qualified to run our lives. Playing God 
deciding we know what's best has gotten a lot of us into trouble. Remembering that God is holy is remembering that He is God and we are not. Well, I've got knee problems again, and if you've got some time afterwards, I'd like to tell you all about them. When I was, uh, a few years ago, I had problems in my left knee, and some of you remember I rolled around out here on, in a wheelchair and then in one of those pet machines. And, well, now, despite my youthfulness, I've had, got trouble with my right knee, and I'm kind of hobbling around, and on Friday nights, I run, remember, you remember, uh, the Carol Burnett show and Tim Conway, who, what, that's what I look like on Friday nights. I run, I run kind of like that. Just trying to say, just trying to get through the season. But I'm, I'm back at the physical therapist. And I love my physical therapist. They have been so good to me. But, and I've told you, I told you about this when this knee was bad. Now I'll tell you about it again. But I brought one to show you. I borrowed it from my physical therapist. This is a terrible tool of torture called a goniometer. The goniometer comes from two Latin words meaning angle and measure. And this is what they, this is what they do to you. I mean for you. They, um, <laughs> so I'm sitting out there in the, um, in the waiting room. And um, when they come to get me, when it's my turn, they open the door and inevitably will ask, oh, Mr. Collins, how is your knee? Well, I've learned that um, they don't pay any attention to what I say when they ask me how my knee is. Because I might say, you know, my knee is great and I think I'm finished here. They'd say, well, come on back and let's, uh, let's work on your knee. I could say, you know, I've been looking around this waiting room. And there's, there are lots of folks here that are in worse shape than I am. And they'd say, well, come on back. Let's work on your knee. And they put me on the table. And the doctor has said, it's on my chart, how, the degrees I'm supposed to be able to bend my knee. You know, they want you to get good range of motion and all that. So she puts me on that table and uh, together we bend my knee further than I want to. And she gets, puts this goniometer up there and measures. See, it doesn't matter how well I think I'm doing. And it doesn't matter if I'm doing better than the person on the chair or the table or the bed next to me. What matters is that the doctor has said there is a standard. There is an objective form of measurement. And they decide whether I am measuring up, not on my own assessment or my comparison to others, but by an objective standard called a goniometer. And I know it's corny and trite and hokey and preachy. But there is an objective standard for our lives. It is not our self-assessment. It's not how 
well I think I'm doing. It's not my comparison to other people or your comparison to other people because if we look hard enough, we can find somebody who's doing worse than we are. And I know it sounds tried and corny and preachy, but there is an objective standard for how we're doing. And it is the reason that the Bowers are in Papua New Guinea. To translate the written revelation of God into the heart languages of people. And the written revelation of God says, I am not holy on my own. The written revelation of God says, I was born with a sinful nature, meaning the overwhelming tendency to do the wrong thing. It's not how well I think I'm doing, not well how, how, how poorly others are doing. There is an objective standard, and, and the news is not good. I was born... Not holy. But now the Bible says be holy, but so I'm in trouble. I was born with this overwhelming tendency to do the wrong thing. I'm a sinner by nature and by choice. But there is good news. There's a line in um, the Battle Hymn of the Republic that says, As he died to make men holy, let us die to make men free. Where does that, where does that line come from, as he died to make men holy? comes from the last chapter of the book of Hebrews, verse 12. Jesus suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. And so he died to make men holy, not to make us perfect. But he died to transform us and to allow us to begin a journey toward Christ-likeness. Though we never attain it. He has died to make it possible for us to begin that, that journey. He died outside the city gates, meaning outside the walls of old Jerusalem on a Friday afternoon 2,000 years ago in a profound, profoundly mysterious event. The Lord Jesus stretched forth his hands, laid down his life, and made it possible that we could become Holy, And you know, the word for holy in the New Testament and the word for saints is the same word. Jesus died that we could become saints. Not perfect, but different. Positively, winsomely different. That is our identity. That is our calling to which we never quite live up. But that is our identity, saints. And if you... You were born with that overwhelming tendency to do the wrong thing. And if you never have experienced Jesus, I invite you to him. To trust all that you have and all that you are to the one who died so that you could be holy.